What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? What's stopping you? I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. What's stopping you? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey, everybody. Welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, where we try to answer those questions that you might be walking around with for, uh, you know, in some cases, decades. We've actually heard from folks who have had unanswered questions for a long, long time about the Catholic faith. Well, let's let's take care of that. Now, today we're not going to be taking any phone calls because we're doing a special mailbag edition of our program, going to uh, answer a whole bunch of emails that we've received over the past few weeks that we just couldn't get to on the daily live show. So that's always uh, always a lot of fun for us to dip into the mailbag. Sometimes we can answer some longer emails that we just don't have time to address during the uh, live broadcast. So today it is going to be uh, you and also Charles Berry, our producer, me, Tom Price, and Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing very well. You ready to jump into the mailbag here? Let's jump. This is from Mark in Colorado. He says, I hear all the time that we are a body and soul together, not a, quote, ghost in the machine. What makes us truly human is that we are body and soul united. So, are the saints in heaven really and truly themselves? Is the present heaven kind of a second-rate place until the final resurrection when everybody will be truly and fully human? And again, that's from Mark in Colorado. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, yes, I wouldn't call it second-rate, but uh, (laughs) here's how St. Thomas Aquinas describes the difference between the bliss of the saints in heaven now and what they will experience after the resurrection. He says that Uh, The resurrection will not add anything intensively to the joy of the saints in heaven, but it will add to their experience extensively. Mm. Uh, So, you know, I might take an exquisite pleasure in a piano arrangement of a Beethoven symphony, but it's not the same thing as the symphony. No. You know, and that's kind of an analogy. Okay, all right. Very, very good. Appreciate that. Here is an interesting one from Ed in Michigan. We know many Protestants don't believe in the real presence of our Lord in the Eucharist. Many times Catholics will turn to the bread of life discourse to convince Protestants that indeed it is. So if Protestants who, after reading this, still consider the Eucharist as only symbolic, how do they then reconcile with St. Paul's condemnation of eating the bread or drinking the cup unworthily? Where, which we find in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 29. What would unworthily even mean if the bread and wine are merely symbols? Okay, thanks. So this is an odd question because you're asking me to present and defend the Protestant perspective, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, which, I'm, yeah. which I'm not inclined to do on sure, a show sure. defending the Catholic faith, but right. I will do it anyway. Okay. So, All right. Because there is a point I'd like to draw out of, of this. So St. Paul's major concern in the book of 1 Corinthians is division, schism within the body of Christ. And so uh, one of his major targets for unworthy eating 
and not discerning the presence of the Lord's body mm-hmm. is the presence of the Lord's body in his church, in the people that are gathered to come together and celebrate the Eucharist. And that mm. would be, a Protestant could hold that uh, without ever uh, acknowledging the real presence of Christ in the elements. Now, I confronted this years ago uh, when I was uh, in the Protestant seminary. I had a friend who was a New Testament scholar who was writing a doctoral dissertation on 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, where uh, St. Paul says, the, the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Mm. And we got into interesting conversations about what union with Christ means for embodiment, uh, and this really enigmatic text where Paul says you shouldn't go into a prostitute because you'll unite the body of Christ with a prostitute. And so he seemed to take an extremely realistic view, um, you know, almost a kind of quasi-real presence view, if you will, about the presence of Christ in the bodies of Christians. Mm. And that would echo, in turn, uh, some of the imagery we get from the Old Testament, like the relics of Elisha in, in 2 Kings 13, 1 Kings 13, that bring a dead man back to life. Now, that's something that most Protestants are not very happy about. They don't like to think about dead men's bones being imbued with supernatural power, because it's not only an aversion to the Eucharist, it's really an aversion to materiality as such, conveying or being a conduit for contact with the divine. And so, you know, I came at this from the other point of view. I came at it as someone initially who was not inclined to believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Yeah. But neither was I inclined to believe in the real presence of Christ in people, mm. except as a metaphor. Except as a—I was, well, oh, yeah, we're all the body of Christ. Take that as a metaphor. But there's a kind of realism in Paul's language, in the biblical language there, that suggests that there's more than metaphor involved in this notion of union with Christ. Mm. And so I thought, okay— Something supernatural has happened to the bodies of Christians, and what is the context of that? This is me thinking as a Protestant. And I said, well, the context of this is them coming together to celebrate what I would consider be the Lord's Supper. That this is the the peculiar context in which their unity and the presence of Christ is most manifested, and it has this ontological, this metaphysical effect on those that consume it corporately. And that really got me thinking, while I was still a Protestant, is should I take this communion thing more seriously? And now, that didn't get me to believing in the real presence, but it alerted me to the central importance of liturgy in the mind of St. Paul and made me more amenable to conversation about the real presence, referencing texts like John chapter 6, the Bread Mm -hmm. of Life discourse, uh, as well as sacred tradition. Fascinating. Well, we do thank you uh, so much, uh, Ed, in Michigan. Hope that's uh, helpful for you. We're doing a special mailbag edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN today. So we're not going to be taking your phone calls, but uh, we would love to hear from you if you would like to send us an email for a future show. Here is the address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at EWTN.com. On each of our live shows that we do uh, Monday through Friday at this time, we always like to, uh, you know, do two or three emails if we can squeeze them in uh, before we get to the phones. But on a program like today, it's all emails all the time. So we're looking forward to uh, hearing from a bunch of people like uh, Tom in Maryland. We'll also get to Frank in Yonkers, New York. 
We'll have a, a great email on purgatory from Barbara. She asks all kinds of questions about purgatory, so we're going to get to all those and lots more on this special mailbag edition of Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Stay with us. Call to Communion here on EWTN. We're not taking your phone calls today. It's a special mailbag program. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, on mailbag programs, we like to uh, dig deeper into longer emails that we get that we just don't have time to tackle during our live broadcast. And this is one of them. This is from Barbara, and it's uh, all things purgatory here. So she says, Hello, Dr. Anders. I'm aware of purgatory, but I'm not sure I understand its purpose nor do I know where in the Bible it is discussed. Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, so do we really go to purgatory for further cleansing of our souls before going to heaven? Also, is it during our judgment that determines if we go to purgatory or heaven? And is it true that those in purgatory need our prayers to help them move through their repentance? And finally, it's my understanding that Baptists don't believe in purgatory, and so I'm curious about the differences in our beliefs. And again, all that is from Barbara. Yeah, thanks, Barbara. I appreciate the question. Sorry about the phone ringing in the background. <laughs> it happens. Yeah, I just turned the ringer off. Uh, so let's, let's draw an analogy from human relationships. Imagine that you have a relationship with someone, uh, maybe a spouse, child, parent, friend, uh, that you have offended. Okay. And maybe it's not a one-off. Uh, maybe this wasn't just a thoughtless thing on your part, but it, your, the offense flowed from a deficit in your character. Like, say, perhaps you, you just probably don't apply to you. I'll reply it to me, okay? Perhaps I'm a very unreliable person. I'm never on time. I don't answer the phone. I uh, let my responsibilities f fail. And it, it happens one time too many, and something egregious follows. What's the appropriate response? Well, first of all, I need to go apologize. Sure. And I would say to whoever I offended, look, I'm really sorry. But if I'm really sorry, let's say I, I cost them. Let's say my, my error was costly to them. Uh, if I'm really sorry, I would need to do two things. First of all, I would need to maybe do something to make up for the thing that I cost them. Now, take it from the point of view of the one who's offended. Can you imagine the person I've offended saying to me, Anders, it's okay, I forgive you, we are reconciled. And that our, relish, our fellowship is not fractured, our relationship is not ruptured because of this thing. Sure. Right? We have been renewed in our fellowship. The fact that that person extends forgiveness to me, and we really are, I really am forgiven, and we are all reconciled, does not change the fact that I might still owe to them injustice some reparation. What if I, you know, what if my negligence cost them $100? Okay. Maybe it'd be appropriate for me to say, you know, I know it's my mistake. You're out 100 bucks because of this thing. Look, here, here's 100 bucks. Is that a condition of being forgiven? No. But it might very well be the right thing to do in the order of justice. Seems fitting. So it's you have to distinguish, first of all, the forgiveness and reconciliation on the one hand mm -hmm. from my just desire to make reparation on the other. 
secondly, not only might I need to make reparation, but if I'm sincerely contrite, I need to come to terms with the fact that I was negligent because I have a habit. I'm, an, I'm not a responsible person. I'm not a reliable person. And if I'm not careful, if I'm not intentional, I'll do this again. So what do I need to do to purify myself, to purge myself of that habit and to fundamentally change my character so that I'm the right kind of person in the future? And so making reparation is one thing. Mm -hmm. Actually seeking to purge my bad attitude, my bad habit is another thing. And the act of forgiveness is yet another thing. These are all conceptually distinct. And that's what the church thinks happens in and around purgatory. Yeah, you're right. Christ died on the cross to redeem humankind, to forgive our sins, and to give us the grace to live a righteous life. And that happens irrespective of our cooperation. Christ's death as an objective fact took place 2,000 years ago. It's sufficient for the redemption of the world, whether or not we appropriate it. Um, but having been reconciled to God, that doesn't absolve us in justice of the need to make some act of reparation, just like you would to your friend, or to seek the purity of heart without which no one will see God. So that's the logic of the thing. Okay. Very good. Oh, oh and as to where it is in the Bible. Yes. So, first of all, I will answer that question. But, I, but the premise of the question is, if it's not in the Bible, that's somehow problematic. And I, I just, every time someone asks this question, where is so-and-so in the Bible, I, I can't leave that unaddressed. Because there's no reason to presume that every Christian doctrine should be attested in the Bible. That notion, the idea that the Bible contains the sum total of Christian faith, is not itself a biblical idea. In fact, the Bible bears witness to another idea, namely that the rule of faith for the church is the teaching office established by Christ and sacred tradition. The Bible is not a comprehensive rule of faith, and it was never intended to be. Christ didn't make it that. He didn't intend for it to be that. And the notion that that's how the Bible functions is a Protestant idea, not a biblical idea. It comes from Protestant tradition. It doesn't come from sacred scripture itself. Okay. That being said, there is scriptural uh, warrant for the idea of purgatory. So let's let's talk first of all about this idea of making reparation as something distinct from forgiveness. That's what I led with. Well, that that's all over the Bible, but two really salient passages are 2 Samuel 12 and 2 Samuel 24, instances where David has sinned grievously against God. He's confronted, he's contrite, he repents, God forgives him, and then he does penance. He does something to make up for it. And he says, in fact, I will not offer the Lord a sacrifice that costs me nothing. Right. Not as the price of forgiveness, but as the consequence of forgiveness. Uh, where is this idea that we need to purify our, our attachments and our hearts so that we can have the vision of God? Well, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That's Matthew 5. 2 Corinthians 7, St. Paul says, uh, uh, purify yourselves from everything that contaminates flesh or spirit out of reverence for God. Psalm 22, no, I'm sorry, Psalm 24 says, who can ascend the Lord's mountain or stand on his holy hill? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Yeah. So there you go. Oh, oh, and one last thing. The uh, the praying for the dead yes. as a kind of indirect mm -hmm. witness to the existence of an intermediate state like mm -hmm. purgatory, mm -hmm. we can find in Second uh, Maccabees chapter 12. Okay. And before we wrap up here with Barbara, she was asking about... Uh, 
she says, uh, it's my understanding Baptists don't believe in purgatory. I'm curious about the difference in our beliefs. Oh, sure. Yeah, Baptists definitely don't believe in purgatory. Nope. And uh, because they have a completely different doctrine of redemption as well as a different doctrine of biblical authority. Okay. Barbara, thanks so much uh, for your email. We're doing a mailbag edition of Call to Communion today here on EWTN Radio. Here's one now from Basil who says, In the New Testament, the Lord Jesus speaks of a judgment of a people, a city, and a nation. These entities are made up of individuals who will themselves be subject to personal judgment. So number one, how does a city, for example, suffer an eternal punishment when it will no longer exist as it has no soul? Two, how does the judgment of a city, nation, or tribe impact the judgment of the individual? And finally, does the righteous in a condemned city share part of the punishment that he did not personally participate in? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So when it comes to the final judgment, Mm -hmm. we are judged as individuals, not as members of a group. And I will not be punished because of my genealogical associations. And the book of Ezekiel is very clear about that. Um, But it is uh, entirely possible that I might belong to a city or a tribe or a nation and be swept along by the spirit of the age such that I was guilty individually of the collective sin of this particular entity. Okay, very good. Call to communion here on EWTN. Here's a question now from Russell in Mississauga, Ontario. Hello, Dr. Andrews. Is performing a penance to atone for already forgiven sin still effective for atonement if we really enjoy the penitential act? Put another way, if I want to continue performing a given penance, not necessarily because I think I might shorten my time in purgatory, but because it makes me feel like I'm cooperating with grace, can that still be considered an atoning sacrifice? Sure, absolutely. You know, I, I think a preeminent example here would be giving alms. Uh, Scripture is very clear. The book of Tobit is explicit that giving alms atones for sin. And uh, many people really enjoy giving alms. Yeah. Um, this is a trivial example, very trivial. It hardly amounts to... to um, uh, to the profundity of true almsgiving. But I can remember when I was a freshman in college, I, uh, in one of the more ill-considered decisions of my life, I joined a fraternity briefly. Mm-hmm. And we, I remember we had a fundraiser for a particular charity. And, uh, and we had those, you know, those little, those little cylinders, those little cardboard cylinders, and you stand out on street corners and say, I'm collecting for this or that charity or yes. cause. And I can't remember what we were collecting for. It might have been, been MS. It was something like that. And uh, and uh, I couldn't believe how much people gave, you know, guys with funny letters on their shirts standing there with cylinders, and they just we collected all kinds of money so for something. this charity, you know, and it just cost me an afternoon standing in a hot sun in New Orleans, but uh, I remember afterwards just feeling incredibly gratified by the experience, and mm. uh, and that was probably my first. I mean, I had given to things in the past, but for some reason that one stuck with me. I guess it was the the sweat equity that I put into yeah. it, and I just remember feeling really good about it, and uh, and like I said, that's. You know, that, that doesn't make me any Mother Teresa, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I've had other experiences since then, of course, that were that were enjoyable. And many people uh, just absolutely love this kind of work. And I think that's that's commendable. That means that you're uh, you're, you're developing the habit of charity and, and habits. Virtues are when we are in positively inclined to the good. All right. You were in the uh, 
food fraternity. Is that right? Eat a piece of pie? There you go. Okay, very good. Here's one now from uh, Rick in Bay City, Michigan. We hear from Rick quite a bit. He's a very curious guy. So he says, the Pontifical Biblical Commission issued a document entitled The Jewish People and Their Sacred Scriptures in the Christian Bible. In the, in, in the introduction to the document, we read the following, written by Cardinal Ratzinger in 2001. What ought to emerge now is a new respect for the Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament. On this subject, the document says two things. First, it declares that, quote, the Jewish reading of the Bible is a possible one in continuity with the Jewish scriptures of the Second Temple period, a reading analogous to the Christian reading, which developed in parallel fashion. It adds that Christians can learn a great deal from a Jewish exegesis practiced for more than 2,000 years. So, where is the guidance in the church for undertaking the study of Jewish exegesis? Yeah, thank you so much. So, here's, here's one piece of guidance within the church to that process, and you've already named it in your question, and that is the writings of Joseph Ratzinger. Uh-huh. who went on to become Benedict XVI. Mm-hmm. Rat- Ratzinger is definitely authoritative for Catholics, yeah. and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if in 100 years he's named a doctor of the Church. Uh, and he is unparalleled as a biblical interpreter and also someone that is conversant with, uh, with Jewish, ex- Jewish exegesis. So how about, how about immersing yourself in the biblical studies of Joseph Ratzinger for, for guidance about that? Sounds like a good idea to me. Here's one now from Frank in Yonkers, New York. Dr. Anders, I was hoping you could provide me with appropriate responses to those who say that the Catholic Church was not founded by Jesus and that, quote, being saved is simply putting your faith and trust in Jesus. When discussing these topics with other non-Catholic Christians, I usually hear the Church was founded by Constantine and that, quote, being saved is once saved, always saved. God bless. Frank in Yonkers. Yeah, thanks, Frank. I really appreciate the question. So the difficulty, of course, with that uh, first statement that Christ didn't found the Catholic Church is the words of Jesus, who said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Yeah. Right? So it's pretty obvious that Christ intended the establishment of an institution that he called the church. Now, you know, a Protestant might retort, well, yeah, I'll, I'll acknowledge that Jesus founded the church, but that's not the Catholic Church. That's not in historical continuity with the Pope and his funny hat and all those, you know, guys, the cardinals and the bishops and all that. That whole elaboration is not what Christ had in mind, they might add. And that's an historical question. We can look at the first century church and ask, okay, well, what happened to that? If you think that Christ, if you're willing to concede that Christ founded some church, well, who do you think the immediate successors to the apostles were? Who were their disciples? Uh, who knew them personally, and what did they say about themselves in their office? This is a matter of historical record. We know yeah. these guys, yeah. and they're the bishops of the second century church, and they're the ones that began to use the word Catholic to describe the church's organization, because it was universal. Yep. Yes, indeed. So there you go. Uh, Frank in Yonkers, New York, thanks so much for your question. Oh, once saved, always saved. Yeah. Yeah. So Jesus never says that, of course. Christ says that the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. Right. And uh, the rest of the New Testament is pretty emphatic that a person can be in the church with the Holy Spirit and in relationship to Christ and still be lost. So, you know, Paul advises the Galatians, who he says, you guys have received the Spirit of Christ— that they are in danger of shipwrecking their faith if they return to their old ways. 
Uh, the book of Hebrews says the same thing, Hebrews chapter 6. Second uh, Peter chapter 2 says, Better not to have entered the way of righteousness than to enter it and turn away. Um, so uh, the New Testament has no has no doctrine of once saved, always saved. It has an idea that those who persevere to the end will be saved. Yes, indeed. And we'll close with this one here from Rita. Greetings, love your show. My Hindu friend asked me this question, saying, if your God made Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, where is that garden now? Yeah, right. I appreciate the question. So this question presupposes a very literalistic and fundamentalist interpretation of Genesis 1 to 3, and I don't think that that is a necessary part of Catholic faith. So I personally don't believe that you—this is not the sort of thing that geology, archaeology, anthropology, or, or, or historical botany— could ever establish, right? This is a, yeah. that's not that's not the nature of the Garden of Eden. You won't find it by taking a left turn at Albuquerque. You're not, right, exactly. All right, very that's good. A, that's a Looney Tunes reference there, isn't Bugs it? Bunny all yep. the way. Uh, Rita, thanks so much for your email. We're going to do lots more on this special mailbag edition of Call to Communion in just a moment, right here on EWTN. Hey, we're glad you're with us on this special mailbag edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, love to hear from you. The address ctc at EWTN.com, ctc at EWTN.com. We have an email here from a, quote, concerned Catholic. This person says, hello, thank you for what you do. My brother-in-law, with whom I have a strong relationship, was baptized Catholic, grew up Lutheran, but received a, quote, believer's baptism at his Assemblies Church a few years ago. He now has two children under three, but has baptized neither. Why would an already baptized Christian want to be baptized again? And why would a vibrant Christian withhold the graces offered in baptism from his children? I love him, love my nieces. Please help me understand how these decisions affect their potential salvation and what role I can play to steer them in the right direction. Thanks for any wisdom you can provide a concerned Catholic. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So there are many Protestant Christians, not all of them, but there are many Protestant Christians that believe that baptism should only be administered to to those old enough to make a a conscious profession of faith. Okay. And the Assemblies of God would be included in that. And so in their mind, baptisms performed before the age of reason are no baptisms at all. They're, they're not effective. And so they would take the position that I'm not withholding grace from my child. There's no grace to be given by administering baptism to that child. Moreover, uh, the same Protestants would typically argue that baptism itself does not convey grace but is rather an outward sign of an inward profession of faith uh, you know, that is the result of grace already received. And so one performs the ordinance in obedience to the Lord's command and as a signal to the community that, you know, I'm a, I'm a believer and I belong and I'm one of you guys, but that baptism itself is basically spiritually inert. So that would be the, the Assembly of God position, and that's why they would take the stance that they take. Now, okay. what, what can you do for this family? Um, you can love them deeply from the heart and without condition. And you can be a sane, sound, wise uh, Catholic person in their life, and that, and so that by your life you might belie or put the lie to mm-hmm. the stereotypes about Catholics that they are likely to be taught in the assembly of God. 
right? So uh, there's nothing to defeat a stereotype like a living exemplar of the uh, of a member of the group under consideration that does not conform to the stereotype. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for your email. We hope that's helpful for you. Here's one now from Jim in Canada. Uh, Jim listens to our podcasts uh, via Spotify. Jim says, Dr. Anders, on many occasions you have been asked about the, quote, nature of God. You have stated God is unchanging and that we should never ever (laughs) anthropomorphize or humanize the attributes of God. I believe you even stated once that empathy and sympathy cannot be attributes of God. Now, God the Son himself used the word Abba, which supposedly in Aramaic is more akin to daddy or papa than sir or formal head of household. So with that, Dr. Anders, please justify yourself. Is God the Father personable or not? If I stub my toe and break it, is he upset or not? If I have stage four cancer, is he upset or not? Is the concept of a, quote, loving, personally interested Father God a misnomer and a falsehood? Regards, Jim. Okay, thank you. I appreciate the question. So uh, one thing that you said I would dispute, and that is that Anders made the statement that we should never under any circumstance anthropomorphize. Uh, And I wouldn't put it that way, uh, because Scripture itself uses anthropomorphic language about God. I mean, the book of Genesis says God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. That's pretty anthropomorphic. It is. Uh, When Abraham meets uh, God and his companions under the oak tree in Mamre, and they sit down and have a meal together. That's pretty anthropomorphic, right? Mm -hmm, So there's a mm -hmm. lot of that kind of imagery in sacred Scripture. And it is not inappropriate for people to relate to God uh, personably, and because that's how we're put together. And there's a principle of Catholic philosophy that, that whatever is received is received according to the mode of the receiver. So, you know, if you want to, if you want to catch radio waves and listen to EWTN, you had better not rely on your kitchen microwave. No. Right? You need the right tool. Yeah. It has to be received according to the mode of the receiver. Sure. And since we are anthropods and our our relatedness to the world and one another is emotional and interpersonal and interactive in that way, uh, this kind of language is used about God in sacred scripture because it's 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 accommodated to our personalities, right? Mm-hmm. But if we want to speak in strict metaphysical and philosophical terms, and Catholic doctrine does rely on such tools, then we conclude that God is more unlike these things than he is like them. So the Fourth Lateran Council, for example, makes this statement explicitly, that uh, that between God and creatures there is analogy. Mm-hmm. So there's something, God is in some ways like a human father, but the, the disanalogy, the ways in which he is unlike a human father, are infinitely greater than the likenesses. Now, wh- why do I think this matters? I mean, first of all, it matters because it is a point of Catholic dogma. I didn't make this up. You, you write as if this is somehow my private opinion. It's not my private opinion. I learned it from the Church. Okay. Okay. So, number one, it's important because it is the Church's teaching. Um, but I do think that it has a spiritual payoff to it. Uh, and uh, in particular, in my own case, this is, I will speak personally here, mm-hmm. w- when we come into confrontation with suffering, if I th- 
if I think too anthropomorphically about God, then my experience of suffering becomes unintelligible, hmm. right? Because, you know, if I, if I imagine God, you know, sitting on the edge of his bed, chewing on his fingernails and, you know, like weeping over my problems, that, that kind of image, right? It, then I can only conclude that he's impotent or cruel, right? Because that's not how humans respond, right? But if I recognize that God is vastly other, and that, like, my conceptions about how he ought to respond to me are really diminished. They're, they're, they're quite insufficient to capture the totality and the mystery of God. Then I'm a little bit more open to the idea that God in his infinite goodness might be present to all things in a way that's, that's good, in a way that's love, but doesn't at all conform to my very human and, as you put it, personable expectations. Jim, thanks so much for listening to us on Spotify. Glad to be on that platform. We are on so many platforms and blessed to be on all of them. It's called a Communion here on EWTN, doing the mailbag program today. This is from an anonymous woman in Texas. This person says, I am a divorced Catholic who has obtained an annulment. I am now dating a man who had been baptized as an infant as a Methodist, but has not gone to church in 50 years. He was married to an atheist in a civil ceremony in a foreign country. They were married 17 years before she abandoned him and their son to work in another country. They have now been apart for over 23 years, and she has since remarried. Well, he is currently going through classes to become a Catholic. Is it necessary for him to petition for his previous marriage to be annulled in order for us to be married in the Catholic Church? And then again, that's from an anonymous woman in Texas. Yep. He, he does need an annulment. Should not be a difficulty. Okay. Based on the, the description of the case you've given me, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it's highly unlikely that they intended what the church means by marriage. Yeah, you and I would look at this and say, wow, that's complicated, but the church would not see it as that, I, that complicated. A, I'm not a canonist or the son of one, but my <laughs> intuition about this is that this should not be a difficulty. Very good. And while we're on the subject of uh, marriage, here is one from uh, E.L. E.L. says, hello, Tom and Dr. Andrews. My Catholic sister has decided to not get married by the church. In short, her Protestant fiancé was previously married. They started the process to nullify the previous marriage, but did not proceed any further once they realized it was not going to be a quick and easy process. Now, they have asked me, E.L., to be, to be a groomsman in the wedding. So my question is, can I be a groomsman without incurring any fault of my own? At a minimum, can I even attend the wedding without incurring any fault of my own? Thanks, E.L., yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question, E.L. I, I must say that these kinds of questions are really judgment calls about the possibility of scandal. Mm. And as such, I, I have no infallible answer to give, Yeah. right? And and we always have to kind of weigh the, the balance of these things. I mean, on the one hand, I, I don't concede that this is a valid marriage. Church says it's not a valid marriage. Um, on the other hand, I, uh, I, I don't necessarily expect them to understand or appreciate the church's reasoning or make an effort to, and I don't know what the, the cost of the relationship will be if I don't comply, and, uh, and I have to kind of weigh uh, which is more likely to cause scandal, who, and who am I going to scandalize? Yeah. Am I going to scandalize, say, my children by participating, or am I going to scandalize, i.e., cause them to stumble and be more embittered against the church, this couple, by not attending? And that's a 
judgment call that I'm not privy to. I'm not close enough to the action to make that kind of a call. Very good. E.L., thanks so much uh, for your email. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Be sure to join us each and every weekday at uh, 12 noon Eastern for Take Two with Jerry and Debbie. Uh, it's a wonderful program. If you've never heard it, it is a really kind of a family affair. Jerry and Debbie and their callers take a second look at personal problems, cultural issues, spiritual things going on in their lives. And it, it really is a family approach. And, and uh, Jerry and Debbie are very, uh, very careful about, uh, you know, saying, yeah, this is a family program and we are here as a family to try to work through some of these issues. It's a great program. Do check it out. Take two with Jerry and Debbie. That's uh, Monday through Friday at noon Eastern with an encore at midnight Eastern right here and uh, only here on EWTN Radio. Here's a question now from Dan. Uh, we're, we're getting kind of deep in the weeds on this one. Dear Dr. Anderson, Tom, I am a lifelong Catholic thinking about the infallibility of the Pope. There seems to be a recurring theme of the church changing its teachings over the years. At Vatican I, way back, the church established the teaching on papal infallibility and proclaims that it dates to the early church. Well, there are numerous examples of the church changing its teaching throughout history. Several bulls and councils, quoting here Unum Sanctum, Cantate Domino, and the Fourth Lateran Council that teach that you must be Catholic to be saved. I often hear you speak about Protestants, that they have their two sacraments, and that it's ultimately up to God to decide their salvation. Obviously, that contradicts the church's earlier position that there is no salvation without the church. So, my question is, if the Pope's teaching, including councils, is infallible, meaning that the Pope had divine assistance from God and that God does not change, how can the church change or redefine its teaching? This is a question that bothers me, and everyone I read seems like they kind of dance around this question. I'm hoping you can help me understand. Also, are there any good books that might help me? Thanks, and God bless. Dan. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So one important distinction... Whoa, there goes my microphone. Look out. One important distinction to draw is between infallibility I, and inspiration. And the Church's position is that the Pope and the councils and the, or, and the ordinary magisterium of the Church... Uh, well, let me go back. The extraordinary magisterium, which is the Pope and the councils, uh, can speak infallibly, but they're not inspired. And what's the difference? Inspiration is a quality that sacred scripture has, and it, it means that the text says exactly what God wants it to say, that the words are God-breathed. In some, okay. some way, God superintended the composition of the book so that it says exactly what God once said. That's not what infallibility means. Infallibility just means that the Pope hasn't said something that's erroneous. Mm. It doesn't guarantee that he said it well. <laughs> or judiciously, or okay. prudently. All right. And the the one of the clearest illustrations of this in history is Saint, 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 Saint John Henry Newman. Yes. Who I think we might he might end up being a doctor of the church one day, right? He's a very highly regarded theological authority in Catholic tradition. Uh, Newman, with regard to the First Vatican Council, took a position that today is called inopportunism. Okay. And what that means is he believed what the council said because the council said it, but he thought the council shouldn't have said it. Hmm. And so uh, let your wrap your head around that for a minute. The idea that 
a, a revered Catholic authority could say, yeah, I, I, I agree that if the council defined that, it's, it's not erroneous, it's mm -hmm. not fallible, mm -hmm. but it was imprudent to say it, and he had his reasons why he thought that. Um, that's an extraordinary position to take, but it really clarifies what is not being claimed about infallibility. It underscores that papal pronouncements, even infallible ones, are historically situated prudential judgments of the Pope. It's not prudential re regarding the truth of the content, but it's prudential regarding the timing, the context, the intent, the target audience. All of those things are, are, are sort of up for grabs, while the content itself may yet be preserved from error. You know, mm -hmm. um, I mean, to take a trivial example, I could, uh, you know, I could, I could, uh, I had a, I had a meeting at the chancery of the diocese today. Uh -huh. I had to go to a supervisor's meeting, and I could have, I could have stood up in the middle of that meeting and yelled out the Pythagorean theorem. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been infallibly true. Yeah. And very imprudent to do so. Sure. Right. And so interpreters, and this ultimately the interpreter of the church's tradition is mm -hmm. the church, right? Interpreters look at those kinds of things in trying to apply and understand the significance of these pronouncements. How, how, what is their scope? What was the intended audience? What really was in view at the time? And, uh, and, and that can qualify the way we read these statements and the way they pass down through the tradition and get lived out in Catholic history. Now, when it comes to the question of salvation outside the Church, it is taught in sacred scripture that there are individuals in heaven who were not baptized Catholics, especially all the Old Testament saints. Sure. Right? Um, from the second century, there were Catholics like Justin Martyr, who maintained a pretty lively and optimistic attitude towards pagans that lived a virtuous life and said they live in obedience to the same divine logos who became incarnate in Jesus. And so there, there are qualifications and shades and nuances within divine revelation and sacred tradition itself uh, before the modern era. Pope Pius IX, who was uh, nobody's idea of a raving liberal by any stretch of the imagination, um, he was the one that promulgated the First Vatican Council, called the First Vatican Council, uh, taught explicitly that Protestants can be saved if they are Protestant through no fault of their own and with a good will seek to do the will of God, and their ignorance of the Catholic Church is not imputable. Okay. Appreciate that, and uh, thank you so much, Dan, for your question. Call to Communion here on EWTN. We've been doing this show for a number of years now. Uh, this email from Randy in St. Louis brings up a couple of terms I have never heard before. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Anders. Does the church have a position on dual covenant versus supersessionism? Um, yeah, it does. And uh, you, you'll find it in, um, in Nostra Aetate, which is the Second Vatican Council's Declaration on Non-Christian Religions, and it is that the covenant with the Jews has not been uh, revoked, hasn't been superseded. Um, and so... Uh, they remain uh, beloved by God, and God has a plan for their salvation. And 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 uh, and so anything that would smack of anti-Semitism is rejected by the Church. Sounds good to me. Here's one now from Monica. I have a friend who says, "How can we have free will when God knows everything, and we can't surprise God by our choices?" I think, of course, we can't surprise God, but that God can surprise us. Yes, He knows our life 
But my friend says, what's the point if things are going according to God's will anyway? What's the best way to respond? Yeah, thank you. So obviously I don't have a divine perspective on this, being a limited human person, but I clearly have times in my life when I am utterly certain about the outcome of some future event that I am not causing, ah. that I'm not constraining or controlling. Um, you know, if I, uh, if I offer my son, let's see, shaved beets, <laughs> or um, what would be the alternative, or pasta and, and marinara sauce for dinner, I am not going to constrain the outcome. But I am 100% certain that he's going for the pasta and not the shaved beets. Maybe 101%. Yeah, now, me, I'd go for the shaved beets. I, I know you that. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's possible to have foreknowledge and not, and not control the outcome. All right. Very good. So thank you so much uh, for your question. Uh, if you're just joining us, this is the mailbag edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Not, to the, not taking any phone calls today, but to try to get through as many of these wonderful emails as we can. Here's one now from John in West Columbia, South Carolina. Dear Dr. Andrews, I think I remember, no guarantee though, reading about a woman who had no exposure to or knowledge of God. She was looking at the stars and was overcome with a desire to know who created them. This led to her inward search for the Creator, which may have culminated in her salvation. Her story is relayed as an example of invincible ignorance, not always being a barrier to salvation, and also the baptism of desire, or at least that's what I think I remember. I can't find that reference after several hours of internet searching. I wonder if you've heard the same story and if you know who it refers to. Thanks for your wonderful show. John in South Carolina. I absolutely know who that is because it's a story I tell on the air all the time. I will say, however, that invincible ignorance is never a barrier to salvation because uh-huh. it's invincible, meaning meaning it's not the person's fault, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Vincible ignorance, ignorance for which I'm culpable, that's different. But if uh, if I'm if I'm ignorant of something and I have no way of knowing it, I'm not responsible for my ignorance. The person you are uh, referring to is Saint Josephine Bakita. That's Very who you're talking about. There it is. And and as a as a P.S., uh, John in South Carolina says. The accounts I read of St. Josephine Bikita and St. Emerentiana don't seem to fit, but but they do. Uh, Josephine Bikita does fit, yeah. She's the one. Yep, yep, yep. John, thanks so much uh, for your email, and uh, if you're ready to go French here, this is, this is a question for you from uh, Raphael in Brookville, Maryland. Dr. Andrews, thanks for your show. If baptism wipes away our original sin, do we end up as Rousseau envisioned? good by nature, but corrupted by ills within society. No, absolutely not. No, 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 no. Rousseau was very wrong, very wrong. Um, the Catholic position is that the original sin is a privation of, of sanctifying grace. That's what it means. Okay. And the wounds of original sin, that is, that is ignorance and concupiscence and weakness and, and egocentrism, those wounds are not eliminated by baptism. They're not culpable, they're not sins, but mm-hmm. they are occasions of sin. And so we come into the world, even if we're baptized as children, with, with wounds, with perennial difficulties and problems in the moral life, for which Christian nurture and the life of grace and the sacraments are the remedy. Uh, but no, no, Rousseau was very wrong, very naive. And interestingly, Rousseau, who you know wrote Emile and books on education and how all these ideas about how to raise kids, uh-huh. had a bunch of illegitimate children, he dumped them all off in an orphanage. 
awkward. He was no he was no exemplar. No, no, no. Hey, thanks uh, so much uh, for your question. Here's one now from Greg in Southern Connecticut. I'd like to know if it's possible for the Holy Spirit to bring God-fearing peoples into communion with God, even if they don't know Jesus Christ and don't fully understand the Spirit at work. This is how I think about the righteousness of other religious faithful like Muslims or Buddhists many of whom live faith-filled lives aligned with the commandments. Yeah, well, this is the position the church takes. Your, your, your position is the church's position, that anyone who's saved is saved by grace and the grace of Christ, uh, but grace can come to people in extra-sacramental ways known only to God. Now, that's different from saying something like all Muslims are saved or all Buddhists are saved. We, we don't say that. For that matter, not all Catholics are saved. Uh, but uh, but it is possible, of course, for God to extend grace to people in ways known only to himself, in ways in which they can cooperate. Greg in Southern Connecticut, thanks so much for your question. And uh, we'll probably close with this one from Tom in Maryland, who is a convert to Catholicism. Can you please explain the treasury of merit? The Catholic Church, or the Catechism of the Catholic Church, does not go into much detail. Thanks, love your show. Yeah, thanks. So it's the idea that that we can benefit from the righteousness of the few, that their merits can avail for us, for our salvation. And it really is integral to the whole idea of the communion of saints. You remember when Abraham pleaded with God in Genesis 18 and said, will you, uh, will you destroy the righteous along with the wicked in Sodom? And God says, if I can, you can find 10 righteous people, I'll spare everybody. Mm-hmm. That's the idea, right? That for the sake of the few, God might be clement and merciful to the many. Why do you suppose the Catechism does not go into more depth on uh, the, the whole idea of uh, treasury of merit? That's a good question. Uh, maybe because it's a controversial topic ecumenically in dialogue with Protestants, and that's something that they usually hold over our heads like it's some kind of you know great guillotine to chop our theological <laughs> you know tops off. I don't know. I mean, when I was a Protestant, I, I ridiculed the idea. That could be one reason. The other reason is, what is the thing already, what, 800 pages long? How it's long big. Is- yeah, I was right. It's about 800 pages long, yeah. and you're like, you gotta, you got to cut somewhere. You can't get it all in there. Got to cut somewhere. Now, and, and my final question to you, is a guillotine or guillotine? Yeah, yeah, one of those. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where we got to leave it. Thank you so much, Dr. David Andrews, for uh, answering all these great questions. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. Don't forget, we do the program live for you Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern right here on EWTN Radio with an encore of that same show at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. You can always check out the podcast at EWTNRadio.net, EWTNRadio.net. The mailbag is now pretty depleted. We have one email left, and we'll let that be, uh, you know, kind of like starter for sourdough bread uh, that (laughs) will hopefully have a lot more emails to tackle from the next time we dip into the mailbag. On behalf of all of us here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us on Call to Communion. God bless.